Fatigue is often tied to people not feeling like their inputs actually result in outcomes. Usually when I work with clients that are experiencing fatigue, they rode this big wave of momentum to put forward a whole bunch of initiatives, right? They started an employee resource group, they started a DEI council or a committee, they brought in a few speakers, they had some courageous conversations, they tried to talk to managers, and then a few years later they look around and nothing. It looks the same, it feels the same. Anyone in that environment will feel discouraged, exhausted, burned out, because they can't tie the inputs into the system into the outcomes that they wanted to achieve. And then it's all going to fail miserably. If you're trying to do this work, plan for the long haul. Plan to be engaging all of your stakeholders, plan for it to take a while. Fund the people doing the work. Ensure that you're trying to sustain the cadence of DEI work rather than trying to burn out everyone doing it in one month. That's a big challenge facing DEI work. Everyone seeking it out dramatically underestimates how much work it's going to be, how long it's, it's going to take, and how much it's going to cost. If it was one thing I could flip a switch, I would maybe uh, shake managers a little bit and be like, get it, figure it out, right? Like it's hard work. Like you would fund anything else that takes this amount of time. So fund DEI. If it's a thing that matters to your business, give it the funding it requires and the time and the resources. Welcome back everyone to The Fix, where every week we interview thought leaders, world leaders, academics, business leaders, activists, and ordinary people who are taking action to build workplaces that work for everyone. Before we start, just a quick request. If you like our podcast, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review. You can also sign up to our newsletter and get in touch at www.thefixpodcast.org. This week, Kelly is on holiday, so you have me, your host, Michelle King. And for those of you who know me, you'll know that I work with a lot of different companies around the world to support them with their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And the one question that nearly every client has is why do their DEI efforts fail? Why is it that organizations claim to be invested in advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion? They launch one initiative after another, yet research finds that pretty much at any point in time, roughly half of us feel isolated, excluded, devalued, and disengaged of work. Based on my own research, I know that there are actually three reasons that work together to ensure that DEI efforts fail. These include fatigue, backlash, and denial. When DEI efforts don't address the root cause of inequality, people become tired and fed up with all the lip service. This fatigue leads to backlash because people start to resist efforts and initiatives that aim to address discrimination and inequality at work, but very rarely do. And when resistance isn't enough, people might even resort to denying that inequality exists at all. Examples of this include managers who will say things like, inequality isn't a problem in my workplace, team or department. Joining us on today's episode is Lily Zhang, author of DEI Deconstructed. Lily is a sought-after diversity, equity and inclusion speaker, strategist and organizational consultant who specializes in hands-on systemic change to turn positive DEI intentions into positive DEI outcomes. The starting point for advancing DEI in any organization is treating inequality like the business problem that it is. This requires investment. Lily believes organizations don't put their money where their intentions are when it comes to DEI. 
This in turn creates fatigue, backlash, and denial. DEI work is dramatically underfunded across the board. Pay your heads of DEI much more. Pay your employee resource groups much more. Pay your DEI councils. When you're accounting for DEI work, Stop thinking in terms of days or weeks or months and start thinking in terms of months and years. There's so much work out there that frames this really big achievement of, let's say, like, okay, we're going to fundamentally rehaul our organizations and incentive systems, hiring, referrals, promotions, conflict resolution, and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, very exciting. And they're like, and we're going to do it in a month. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're, you're not, that's not possible. And with what budget? They're like, uh, five to 10 K. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, that's not going to work. You're, you're going to end up a month later having barely gotten people on board with the idea. And then it's all going to fail miserably. If you're trying to do this work, plan for the long haul, plan to be engaging all of your stakeholders, plan for it to take a while, fund the people doing the work, ensure that you're trying to sustain the cadence of DEI work rather than trying to burn out everyone doing it in one month. That's a big challenge facing DEI work. Everyone seeking it out dramatically underestimates how much work it's going to be, how long it's, it's going to take, and how much it's going to cost. If there's one thing I could flip a switch, I would maybe uh, shake managers a little bit and be like, get it, figure it out, right? Like it's hard work. Like you would fund anything else that takes this amount of time. So fund DEI. If it's a thing that matters to your business, give it the funding it requires and the time and the resources. Despite the overwhelming evidence indicating that workplaces with more diversity are more profitable and creative, a lot of companies are experiencing employee fatigue, which encompasses the feelings of frustration, exhaustion, and even skepticism around making workplaces more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Symptoms often include employees just simply not believing that progress is happening or lacking enthusiasm to pursue DEI goals. Fatigue is often tied to people not feeling like their inputs actually result in outcomes. Usually when I work with clients that are experiencing fatigue, they rode this big wave of momentum to put forward a whole bunch of initiatives, right? They started an employee resource group. They started a DEI council or a committee. They brought in a few speakers. They had some courageous conversations. They tried to talk to managers. And then a few years later, they look around and nothing. It looks the same. It feels the same. Anyone in that environment will feel discouraged, exhausted, burned out because they can't tie the inputs into the system into the outcomes that they wanted to achieve. And so addressing fatigue for me is a two-part problem. One is the more proximal, immediate problem of, okay, if people are burned out, what do they need to take care of themselves? So this treads into the familiar territory of well-being, self-care, community care, take a break, take care of yourself. Really important stuff. I'm not going to linger there because plenty of people talk about how to do that. What I'd like to focus on more is addressing fatigue and burnout with greater efficacy. I think it's not that people are tired of doing DEI work. It's they're tired of doing DEI work that doesn't achieve anything. Anyone would be tired of it. So to address that kind of fatigue, we need to be rethinking all of our initiatives, potentially even doing less, but making sure that we can directly tie every single thing we're doing into the outcomes we're trying to create. The technical term for it is theory of change, right? We need to be able to say, this is point A. This is point B. We're going to do interventions X, Y, and Z. X is going to achieve this. Y is going to achieve this. And because X and Y are both there, Z allows us to achieve this. 
to get from point A to point B. We have metrics to measure each ones. We have accountability partners that there are going to be consequences if they can't achieve each step of this process. And the end result, all of our stakeholders are going to be accountable. That doesn't look like most DEI initiatives in most companies. I didn't really lay out rocket science just now, but like that doesn't look like DEI initiatives in most companies. In most companies, it's usually some volunteer or underpaid DEI person going like, oh, I'm going to do my best to like throw this initiative at the wall and hope it sticks with no measurement, no accountability, no funding, no budget, no nothing. And then surprise, it doesn't stick. And then everyone's tired and they do it again. Everyone's tired and then people burn out. So we really need to be rethinking that, right? Like we, we can't keep doing the same things that keep burning out DEI folks. That's where the fatigue is coming from. There's a ton of evidence out there that many diversity programs fail. If your organization has fallen into this category, there may be more resistance or backlash to DEI efforts. Employees may try to undermine your DEI initiatives or even withdraw their support altogether. There may also be some doubts regarding whether DEI initiatives will produce any long-term changes. Backlash is simply a symptom that people no longer believe that your organization is committed advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI backlash is probably the single biggest factor that has sabotaged DEI efforts in the last hundred years, in that when people feel threatened, they will hunker down and try to resist anything you do in the DEI space. To address that backlash, what you need to really do is to frame these efforts at resolving inequities, at achieving justice, less in a way that people perceive as attacking and more in a way that people can can see a role for themselves in. So for example, one of the recommendations that I give both in the HBR article and the book is telling people, you know, we're going to be fixing systems right now. So if there is an inequity, let's say in an organization, hiring managers have historically hired people who look like them, who tend to be white, cisgender, and heterosexual, for example, who might have graduated from Ivy League colleges. The framing that is likely to make them very defensive is our hiring managers have lots of biases and we need to fix our managers. Our managers have problems and we need a remedial unconscious bias training. I guarantee if you approach your hiring managers with that, you won't change anything. If anything, you'll make their biases worse. They'll be really antagonistic. They'll be angry. They'll feel attacked. They'll get defensive. Instead, you can say things like, hey, hiring managers, I understand things are really hard. You might not have the support you need. We don't have a good process for hiring in a way that allows us to really be objective about our candidate skills. So let's find a way to institute things like hiring panels. Let's come together to design a scoring rubric on how to evaluate candidates. Let's give you some more time so that you don't have to give us 10 candidates in a week. I know that that makes you all really stressed. And let's try to diagnose the root causes of this problem as a systemic issue rather than a a weird individual, there's something wrong with your brain issue, which is where a lot of the conversations tend to boil down to. And you find that if you use that systemic approach to activate the people who may be part of the problem, As part of the solution, you'll find both that the buy-in is much higher and you'll find that they are way more able to accept changes to the system. And a hiring manager that in, in one situation you might point at to say like, you're so biased, might in another situation 
be a really powerful contributor to helping create, let's say, processes and practices that mitigate bias. It's all about how you frame the issue and how you engage the people that are part of it. If we don't tackle backlash head on, it often leads to denial. I've often talked about denial, both racial and gender denial, as this is something I've come across in my PhD work. My definition of denial is the denial of difference in different lived experiences of work. We deny inequality exists at work when we uphold the belief that workplaces function in the same way for everyone. If you're not succeeding, then you need to try harder. It's not your workplace, it's you. But there's so much research that shows workplaces devalue difference. Discrimination and inequality exist because workplaces don't work for everyone in the same way. When your leaders engage in denial at work, it's often one of the most difficult barriers to overcome in advancing DEI. Why do people resist DEI work? People might resist changes to the balance of power in an organization, advocacy, how to get people on your side, how to be strategic about framing DEI work. I actually have a number of articles on this in the Harvard Business Review. Two of them I, I can think of. One of them is how to show white men that DEI efforts need them. And that's an article about how to frame DEI work. So instead of like a zero sum game saying like, hey, white men, we're going to take things from you and give them to other people, which most people don't like to hear and don't enjoy <laughs> engaging in. Instead saying, you know, we're here for collective learning, for collective growth. You know, we're here to get a greater understanding of how different populations experience the workplace. And to the extent that some populations are not being treated well, we're going to understand why and rectify those inequities because we really care about a workplace that's fair. That framing tends to really activate people. And, and it doesn't mean that denial won't happen, but it tends to lower people's barriers. And then I have another somewhat similar article that talks about how to mitigate DEI backlash by using a systems framing. So DEI backlash is probably the single biggest factor that has sabotaged DEI efforts in the last hundred years. In that when people feel threatened, they will hunker down and try to resist anything you do in the DEI space. Fatigue, backlash, and denial create the DEI death spiral because it leaves employees feeling powerless to affect change. Employees simply believe that there's nothing they can do to change their workplace, but this simply isn't true, as Lily explains. I hear so frequently that individual contributors don't have power. And frankly, that's wrong. That takes me off because everyone in a workplace has power. There's formal power, so the, the power that comes from being in a leadership position. There is reward power, the ability to give people something they like to influence behavior. Coercive power, the ability to punish people. And then there's expert power, the power that comes from being an expert, from having that sort of unique skill. Information power, the power that comes from having valuable information. And referent power, which is the power that comes from being liked, having charisma, being able to influence. Every single person in the workplace has at least one kind of power. And I talk to way too many ICs who say, because I'm not a manager, I can't do anything. I have no power. I have no agency. I just have to sit here and accept what happens to me. And that's just false. That's just patently false. Everyone has the ability to influence. They can use their networks. 
if they ever lead a meeting, they have power in the sense that like they set the norms of that meeting. If they have access to information, they have power in the sense that they can share it with people or they can influence how decisions are made. If they have connections to, let's say, managers, let's say they're friends with a the manager, they have power in that way. So one of my answers is that ICs actually have a lot of power, but it requires that they be strategic in how they use it. They need to think of themselves as people who are in a unique position within their organization with unique access to other stakeholders, with unique information, unique skills and whatever, and be strategic about how they can use those things to achieve their goals. So for example, let's say an, an IC really wants to weigh in on a hiring process that's happening elsewhere in the organization. They really care about hiring diversity, but they're not a hiring manager. So what do they do? So then the question here is, great, maybe you should be meeting with some hiring managers. You should be building some connections. You should be doing some research on effective practices. Let's say there's a really effective practice you find for hiring more diverse candidate pools and you really like the practice. So you talk to your hiring managers. You say, hey, I found this really good practice. Let's say they don't listen to you. Then you say, great, I'm going to bring in some external experts to back up these ideas. I really want to draw on this expert power and this informational power to put forward this change. And then let's say they're still not listening to you. Then you pull together some other colleagues. Let's say you have a relationship with, with one hiring manager. Then you work together to try to push forward that change, right? And you can just keep going in this direction. There's so many things that people can do in a workplace. And if it sounds like organizing, that's because it is, right? Like Because all of this is organizing and how we can build collective power and how we can start DEI movements that utilize large number of people's skills and strengths and access and power and privilege to be pushing forward the sorts of interventions we're looking for. And that's the other major way that ICs can make change, which is not by themselves, but in groups. Organizing is really powerful. You can organize as part of an employee resource group. You can organize as part of a DEI council or committee. You can organize as part of a labor union. All of these things are really powerful, I think, manifestations of collective power, collective organizing, collective advocacy. And they're all tools that ICs have at their disposal. And not just ICs, by the way. They're tools that everyone has at their disposal to make change within workplaces. Over the last 10 years, I've built and used a theory of change to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion at work. And this includes three things, awareness, understanding, and action. Awareness starts with reading, listening, and learning about difference and different lived experiences of work. It's about disrupting your denial and becoming aware of how different people experience your organization. Understanding is about observing how inequality works at work, calling out discrimination and marginalization and managing inequality moments when they happen. You can even use these experiences as opportunities to learn and build your understanding of how inequality shows up in your workplace. And it's with this awareness and understanding that we can begin to take action. Everyone can take time out to think about how they can practice diversity, equity and inclusion as part of the way they deliver their work. The trick is to have goals or KPIs that focus on how you deliver your work in a way that advances inclusion in your workplace. To help with this, you can visit my website, www.michellepking.com, where I share 100 actions that anyone can take 
to make valuing difference the way they work. I really hope you all enjoyed today's episode. It's such an important topic because fatigue, backlash, and denial are the greatest barriers to building workplaces that work for everyone. A quick one before you go, if you love our podcast and would like more, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Your support means so much to us. Thank you for tuning into our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.